You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey folks, Bridget here. Today we had an extraordinary James Beard award-winning author of Soul Food, The Surprising Story of American Cuisine, also the author of the celebrated book, The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families. He is an author, certified Kansas City Barbecue Society judge, an attorney, and so much more, Mr. Adrian Miller. In this episode, Adrian shares his journey from working as President Clinton's special assistant at the White House to becoming a celebrated food author. He also shares with us the background and research for his next book called Black Smoke. Adrian brings to life the untold stories of the African-American culinary professional food history at the White House and beyond. He also shares his thoughts and research on the origins of barbecue within the Native American and Black communities and his infectious passion to keep these stories alive. Grab your favorite cocktail and your favorite barbecue dish and enjoy this very special episode of Served Up. Adrian, welcome to Served Up. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Yeah, what's up? It's good to be with you. It's great to be with you. Um, Could you tell our listeners, um, where did you grow up? Okay, so this is going to immediately lose me all street cred on the subject of Southern food, soul food, barbecue. <laughs> I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Uh, and first, the part of my life, then moved to a suburb called Aurora, Colorado. So that's where I grew up. Uh, and, you know, I, I usually win people back by telling them that I have Southern bloodlines. So my mom is from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and my dad is from Helena, Arkansas. Okay. So they're part of the great migration story uh, for different reasons. They uh, wound out wound up in Denver separately and met and got married and, and stayed. Oh, wow. Is uh, Did your love for food come from your parents? Yeah. So one thing that I'm grateful to my parents for is even growing up in a predominantly white environment, they stayed true to their traditions. So I grew up eating soul food uh, and my mom's a, a really great cook. Um, and so she made a lot of stuff from other cultures. Now, I, I can't say we were getting the authentic thing, but it sure. was good enough. And so I got a deep appreciation for food. And I actually started cooking at a younger age because my um, mom worked nights. And so she was too tired to make breakfast for my twin sister and my little brother. So we took traded off weeks making breakfast. Now, look, um, this was not gourmet stuff, right? Scrambled eggs with eggshells. Oh, my. Maple. Malto meal. Do they even still make malto meal? <laughs> I don't know. I actually like maple. I don't know if they even make maple anymore. Maple. I remember eating that as a kid too. It's just easy. It was filling. Yep. yep. Pancakes and French toast. That was kind of the repertoire. Oh my goodness. And so from there, somehow you made your way to Washington, DC to, to uh, start law school. What was that journey like? Yeah, so I went to Stanford University undergrad, I majored in international relations. And then uh, at that point in my life, I wanted to be a lawyer and then ultimately a politician. So I just figured law was a good path to be going into politics. So I got into Georgetown Law School and um, I didn't have enough money to pay for that first year of school. So I actually moved to DC and lived with my best friend who got in and he was going to law school while I was working there for a nonprofit organization. And then after being in DC for a year, then I studied at Georgetown. Okay. Um, yeah. So then what brought you from law school to eventually really working in DC at the White House um, as President Clinton's special assistant? And that has to be a big story, I know, but we'd love to yeah. hear it. Yeah. So uh, basically I was practicing law and I hated it. Um, it got to the <sighs> point where I was singing spirituals in my office 
And you know how discouraging it is to be in your office while the sun is rising and you're singing Deo. I mean, it's just, Oh not my gosh. Thing. No. Yeah. So, uh, I was going to open up a soul food restaurant in Denver, but then I got a call from a classmate at Georgetown law school. Um, and she was working in the Clinton white house and she just called me asking me if I knew some people back in DC who might be good to interview for a white house job opening. And I said, well, tell me about the job. And it was something called the President's Initiative for One America. It was an outgrowth of President Clinton's initiative on race. And the whole idea behind the initiative on race is that if we just talk to one another and listened, we might realize that we have a lot more in common than what supposedly divides us. So um, when she told me about this, I said, I wanna apply. And she was just shocked that I would even do it. So I got my White House job the old fashioned way. I knew somebody. You knew somebody. What was it like working in um, the White House with President Clinton? Uh, what was, was your great. experience? Was it? Oh, it was great. You know, you're in the people's house. Uh, you're doing really cool things. And I, I will say this, though. Um, you hear a lot of stories about President Clinton. Hey, have you met Pre President Clinton, by the way? I have not met President Clinton. I met Barack okay. Obama, but I have not met President Clinton. Not yet. Okay. So a lot of people, when they meet President Clinton, one of the stories they always tell is how he just makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. He's locked in and he's talking to you. I never got that, even though I was working with him. I always had to remind him who I was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. but despite that um i don't know what there was about me that led to that but anyway bes besides that it was cool uh, i really enjoyed my time there um and i was there at the very end of his second term so i was there basically october of 99 to january two uh, 2001 okay all right that's very cool and then uh what led you to write your first book which is um which is called soul food the surprising story of an American cuisine, one plate at a time. Can you tell me a little bit about how that came to be? It's really an extraordinary story. I mean, you're working with Bill Clinton at the White House, and now you're an author. Yeah. So the short and not, answer is, and not about Bill Clinton, about no, food. No. So, <laughs> uh, so the short answer is unemployment. Okay. Uh, so what happened is at the end of the administration. Uh, when there's a change in presidential administrations, essentially the you write your resignation letter if you're a political appointee to the incoming president who may or may not accept it. Shockingly, George W. Bush accepted my resignation. So I was out of a job. Now, you know, I completely expected that. But um, at that time, my ambition was to be the senator from Colorado at some point. So I was trying to get back to Colorado to start my political career. But the job market was really slow. And so I was watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not even going to tell you what shows. And it finally got to the point where I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to the bookstore and um, uh, I, you know, I'd always been interested in cooking. So I went to the cook, cook, cookbook section and I'm browsing and I find this book by John Edgerton called Southern Food at Home on the Road in History. So I'm, I'm just kind of browsing through that book. And very early on, I want to say page four is one sentence that says the 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 story, the tribute to black achievement in American cookery has yet to be written. Ah, okay. So I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. And so I just uh, emailed him cold because when I picked up that book, it was about 14 years old. So I just figured somebody's done it. So I wrote to Mr. Edgerton by email and I asked him, hey, you know, you wrote this 14 years ago. Do you still think this is true? He said, well, you know, some people have written parts of the story, but, you know, there's always room for somebody else to bring something to it. So, you know, you should do it. And uh, so with no qualifications at all, except for eating a lot of soul food and cooking at some, that's really what started the journey. Wow. And then where did that journey take you? How did you do your research? So I did, I did eventually get a job in Colorado. So I still was thinking I'm going to be in politics at some point. Um, so I was kind of like a grad student. I just uh, went to my world-class library in Denver, the Denver Public Library, which has an amazing amount of resources. And I just started looking up everything I could on African-Americans, African-American food, slavery, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I reached out to food writers, especially African-American food writers, because I wanted to know, you know, had somebody written this work? Had somebody had already been done? Because, you know, there was a chance that Edgerton didn't know. And uh, they all told me, look, nobody's done that, but um, you're not going to find that much because this country's racist. Um, these cooks have never been celebrated. Uh, so good luck. So at the, at the beginning of the project, I thought, well, I'm just going to cobble together the best book that I can, and it'll be a third about the cooks, a third about the food, and a third about the culture that surrounds the food. And um, 
thanks to this newfangled thing called the internet, um, <laughs> I found all kinds of information. So I went from starting out thinking I was barely going to be able to write one book to having enough information to write five at least. So I thought, well, let me just write about soul food because that's the most identifiable aspect, I think, of, of um, African-American cuisine. And I'll do a deep dive on that. So to research that book, I read 3,500 oral histories of formerly enslaved people. And I wow. looked for all references for food. I read thousands of newspaper and magazine articles that are now digitized and word searchable because we have companies that are doing that now. So mm -hmm, you can actually sure. get back to medieval sources uh, and read those um, digital copies of those. Um, talk to hundreds of people, ask them what they think soul food is, what it was, where it's going. Uh, and then because I care about the subject so much, I decided to eat my way through the country. So I went to 150 soul food restaurants in 35 cities in 15 states. Say that yeah. again. Wait a second. <laughs> I know you're surprised that I'm still alive. Uh, I, well, yeah, I went to 150 soul 150 food restaurants, 35 soul. cities, 15 states. That is some R&D work. Yep. And if you were my social media follower, I brought you mm -hmm. along for the ride because I would take a picture of the restaurant exterior and then my plate of food. Now, when I was doing this, um, taking pictures of your food was uncommon. So I have a whole bunch of hilarious experiences where I'm in these soul food joints and I'm taking pictures of my food and people in the kitchen are like elbowing each other. Like, what is this dude doing? <laughs> laughing. Like, why are you take? And then somebody came out one time and said, why are you taking pictures of your food? And then so I explained, well, you know, it's for this thing called Facebook. And they're like, oh, okay. And then, you know, there were some places they're like, hey, no pictures. Really? Yeah, because they thought I was a spy or, you know, they didn't, they weren't familiar with the platforms. And, you know, there's, there's a history of uh, white people, especially going mm -hmm. to soul food joints and copying and stuff and then going to the other side of town and making a ton of money and not giving any um, shine back to the where they got the source. So, you know, sure. I understand that. But I was trying to explain to them what it was, but they just were unfamiliar with the medium. Now, you know, nobody would really say that now. But let's, that was, you know, 10 years ago. Let's talk a little bit about what you, you know, I want to back it up a little bit because you said the book is really based on um, soul food, on the cooks themselves, and then on the culture. What did you just, what did you discover within each of those buckets? Yeah. So um, let me just quickly run through the meal because what I decided yeah. to do was write the, to tell the soul food story. I created a representative soul food meal. And my thought was, okay, if you're going to have lunch or dinner, because I didn't really write about breakfast. If you're going to have lunch or dinner, where are you most likely to get served or see on the menu at any soul food joint in the world? So entrees are fried chicken, fried fish, usually catfish, and then chitlins. And for the uninitiated, chitlins are pork, uh, pig intestines. They're either stewed or fried. Um, then for the side dishes, collards and soul food culture, the most popular are mustard, turnip, collards, kale, and cabbage. So I often tell audiences, if you've discovered kale in the last five to 10 years because of juicing or whatever, welcome to the party. We've been eating them for about 300. Um, then I wrote about black eyed peas, uh, candy jams, which are sweet potatoes, macaroni and cheese, uh, cornbread, hot sauce, and then red drink, because I believe red Kool-Aid is the official soul food drink. Okay. You must understand, yeah, you must understand that in soul food culture, red is a color and a flavor. So African-Americans don't call things cherry or strawberry, that it has hints of cranberry, it's just red. Red. And then for dessert, I wrote about four desserts because I couldn't settle on just one. So uh, banana pudding, pound cake, peach cobbler, and sweet potato pie. So at, in the story of that meal, there was a couple of re, re, uh, revelations. So one big revelation was um, a lot of what we hear about soul food, that it's, you know, that black cooks took the very worst of what white people did not want to eat and made it something delicious. Mm -hmm. um, it's an empowering narrative, but it's actually somewhat false because when you actually look at the history of these foods, there were plenty of white people eating the same things. And so that surprised me. So the, the food story in America, at least when it comes to African-Americans, um, it's more about class and place than race. Okay. So that was a big surprise. The second thing is one of the criticisms you hear about soul food is that, hey, it needs a warning label. Because if you eat this stuff on a regular basis, it's going to kill you. But then if you listen to what nutritionists are telling us to eat, Dark leafy greens, sweet potatoes, more fish, okra mm -hmm. is a superfood, hibiscus. Is, these are all the building blocks of this cuisine. So I was like, well, what's going on here? And what I, what I found out is that soul food really follows the food story for immigrants in America. So if you look at any immigrant group, 
when they get here, you know, the first they're very poor, so they just do what they can. But once they get settled and start to prosper, they start eating the good times celebration food of the old country because they feel like they have status. And we really see this in restaurants. If you go to any immigrant restaurant, what's usually on the menu is the special stuff from the old country. Sure. And soul food is that. The glorious cakes, barbecue, fried fish, fried chicken. That was special occasion food in the rural South. Enslaved people had very little access to those things except on the weekends when the work slowed or a special occasion. And so I'm trying to get people to really rethink of soul food as an immigrant cuisine. It's the food of the migrants who left the South and landed in other parts of the country and them, them just trying to recreate home. Got it. What is your favorite soul food? So uh, a lot of people are surprised when they hear this. Uh, give me some black eyed peas with a ham hock in it, smoked ham hock. And then some mustard and turnip greens with some smoked turkey and a little wedge of cornbread. And I'm good. And you're good. I see yeah. you taking a lot of pictures of those types of foods. For yeah. Sure, I now, if I, if I need to add yeah. an entree, I'm just mm -hmm. a big fish guy. And so bone in catfish is just one of my favorite things. You don't see it very often. Most people are doing fillets. And then a lot of people are doing Vietnamese catfish and passing it off as American catfish. Mm -hmm. um, so you don't see bone in so much, but um, especially if you get the wild stuff, the, the bones add some flavor because, because well, catfish is a mudfish, right? It's a bottom. Yeah, yeah. So it had a very distinctive taste. So that's been farmed out um, to make it more acceptable to the masses. And so the true aficionados actually like that kind of muddy taste that you get with um, catfish. And what I found in my research is that there are species of catfish in West Africa. And so as you delve into the history, what you're finding out is that West Africans don't, they arrive in an alien environment, right? Yeah. But they, st they start to see stuff that's familiar. They see similar fish, plants, and other things. And so the story of this cuisine emerging is just figuring out adequate substitutes for the stuff they can no longer get because they're away from their home. What was uh, one of the earlier recipes um, that you found that was recorded? Anything that stood out to you that you were kind of surprised? Uh, yeah. So um, one was just this idea of a dish we call Hop and John, which is black eyed peas and rice. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I was surprised is because I didn't know the history of African ingredients. So I didn't know that black eyed peas were native to West Africa. And I didn't know that on parts of West Africa, there was an indigenous type of rice. Okay. Um, it was a reddish type of rice, which actually gets grown here in the Americas as well. And a lot of Africans are brought over um, and enslaved to build the rice industry here in the United States. So they do this in the Carolinas and in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. So the slavers were very cognizant of who they were bringing over and they were bringing people over for their, their, their knowledge. Um, another one, which just kind of surprised me, I just never thought about it, is the, one of the earliest desserts was just throwing a sweet potato and the dying embers of a fire and just letting it sit there and um, just roast until it mm -hmm. got glassy on its surface. And that was the earliest version of a candied yam because of that glassy look on the outside. Then what we call candied yams changes over time. Well, yeah, I'm sure it didn't have the marshmallows on it and all this other kind uh, of stuff not. that you I, see. I, <laughs> what you see. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. Right. So the, the way about. the food changes over time and then also just the social mobility of food. Mm -hmm. to see that something that was considered poverty food now was actually royalty food 400, 500 years ago. And it's only called poverty food now because of who's eating it. Right. So mac and cheese is one example. Mac and cheese like goes back to the 1300s and the royal court, the, you know, the chefs for uh, Richard II and Elizabeth mm -hmm. I, they were making mac and cheese. Now, it wasn't the goopy thing that we love today. The mm -hmm. early mac and cheese was essentially the pasta, Parmesan cheese, and butter. And that's and it. So, yep. And so over time, all these other things get added to it. Yeah. Well, in my house, that's called buttered noodles. So <laughs> when, they, when the little kids come over, they always want buttered noodles. <laughs> gotcha. That's been around for a long time. So um, then what brought you to create the book? And I have it in front of me. It's the President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African-Americans who have fed our first families. This book is um, so important. 
you know, not just um, to one culture, but to all, to all Americans. It's a really important book and it's a terrifically fun read, you know, as well. But can you tell me a bit how that came about and what inspired you to write this book? So while I was doing the research for the soul food book, um, which by the way, I forgot, I, I need to celebrate that book more that won the James Beard award. Yes, it did. Congratulations. So, Congratulations. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah. So um, as I was researching that book, I came across these stories of African-Americans who had cooked for our presidents. And I thought, you know, as I learned more about the history, I was like, of course, of course, African-Americans were in the White House cooking because we had so many slaveholding presidents and we had so many Southerners. Uh, and the story of White House cooking is to bring familiar cooks with you to the White House when you're going to be there for a while. So um, but I only had a handful of stories, so it wasn't enough to anchor a book. Could have been a nice article. And then I just thought, okay, uh, after I finish Soul Food, I'm going to just make this my next book. And I'm just going to see if there's enough, if there are enough stories out there. And with my research, I discovered a, at least 150 people had cooked for our presidents uh, since George Washington to the present day. Yeah, I think what's super cool in your book is, you know, when you first open it, I have it in front of me, you really you kind of show that family tree of those who have cooked under each of the presidents, which is a lot of fun to see. And you share some pretty extraordinary stories that really haven't been told. And I would love to hear from you, you know, what what did you find um, kind of shocking or some of the things that you didn't know as you're researching this book? Well, one of the more fascinating stories is the story of Hercules, who was uh, George Washington's enslaved cook, one of them. And um, Hercules is, um, he's actually purchased as a young man. He was about 19. He was a boat ferryman, but for whatever reason, the Washingtons had him transferred to the kitchen at Mount Vernon, where he learned under another uh, enslaved cook named Old Doll. So when uh, Washington becomes president, the presidential residence was in Philadelphia because the White, uh, the White House and really DC was being constructed at the time. So um, what I didn't know is that uh, Washington had a white woman cooking for him, but she only lasted six months. I guess her food was really nasty. <laughs> so he fires her and then he brings Hercules from Mount Vernon and installs him in the Philadelphia kitchen. What I didn't know is that Pennsylvania had a law called the Gradual Abolition Act of 1780 which meant if you were an enslaved person and on Pennsylvania soil for six months or longer, you're automatically free. Okay. So what, jo what George Washington does to get around this is that he takes right, right about the six month deadline. He packs up all the enslaved people in Philadelphia, sends them to Mount Vernon, has them chill out there for like a week or so, and then brings them back. So he could start the clock over. Yeah. That's he does terrible. This, yeah. He does this throughout the presidency. Another example of cruelty um, and celebration is we have James Hemings, who was one of Sally Hemings' older brothers. We know that mm -hmm. Sally Hemings had several of Jefferson's children. And um, again, as a 19-year-old guy, very young guy, he gets taken to France and Jefferson pays for him to get trained as a French chef, like for three years. So spends a ton of money this but um, when Je this is before his presidency, but when Jefferson becomes president, he has two enslaved women, Francis Hearn and Edith Fawcett, be essentially become the sous chefs to this French chef uh, in the White House kitchen. And uh, unlike everybody else at the White House, they have to stay there year round. Now, uh, if you've ever spent a summer in D.C., you know that it, the summer can be miserable. Oh, my and gosh, yes. At the time that the White House first opened, because um, it's in a reclaimed swamp. Uh, the White House basement regularly fun, uh, flooded, and there were there were reports of White House workers getting tropical diseases. Wow! Um, so Jefferson, for whatever reason, made them stay there and cook for the skeleton crew when he and everybody else went, packed up and went back to Monticello when it was warm. So uh, when it got really hot. So we have stories of the husbands of these enslaved women escaping. Monticello and trying to make their way to DC just to be with their wives, but Jefferson always intercepted them and sent them back. Wow. And they were just in terrible conditions, I'm sure, like you're saying, you know, in the White House. I did read in your book that they were, um, that at one time the basement, was it, of the White House was really like this gigantic kitchen. Mm hmm. Yep. Right. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it wasn't really until the Lincoln administration that the White House kitchen got moved to its present location, which is in the northwest corner of the basement. And it's really small. It's really only like 26 by 32 feet. Hmm. 
um you know a lot, a lot of people like oh it's the white house they must have like a kitchen the size of a hotel kitchen but it's it's really really small so the way that enslaved people were treated um you know being celebrated in some points but you know um still living under horrific conditions in many uh situations and uh then it was the story of the kind of the free african-american men and women uh, but the thing that has struck me the most is how multiracial and multi-class the White House kitchen, or the presidential kitchen, I should say, has been from day one. You've had enslaved people working alongside free people and indentured people. You've had blacks and whites working together. In, in recent history, you've had a lot of black, whites, and Filipinos. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the history of White House cooking, um, Filipinos are the largest ethnic presence after African-Americans. Um, so uh, it's been it's been an interesting history, uh, and this the, just the struggles to get the president president the food they want. You think the leader of the free world can have anything they want anytime they want, but usually you have the first lady and the White House physician standing in the way. But we all know the president's ultimately going to get whatever they want to eat. So absolutely, so the intrigue is are. involved. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, kind of fast forwarding a little bit to uh, you know you have pretty much a whole chapter on like Air Force One and what, you know, can you talk a little bit about that and what they were eating and what they were drinking and some of the fun stories around, because that is an extension of the White House kitchen is the plane. Yeah. So Air Force One, they really can't say that they do cooking there because you can't cook at altitude, right? It's just, you mm -hmm. can't fry and all that. Kind of, so what they're really doing is reheating. So there's a uh, food complex and everything at Andrews Air Force Base. And when you have people just kind of pre-cooking, like, you know, either halfway or three-fourths of the way, and then it's reheated on the plane. So usually on the Air Force One, there's a three-person team that's in charge of different sections of the plane. So, you, you know, you typically you have the senior staff and the president towards the front and then the press and other people in the back. And um, one person is in charge of take, you know, reheating the food. Another person is in charge of just taking drink orders. And the other person is in charge of um, basically um, mixing those drinks <laughs> and so all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so three-person team. So one of the people I feature in my book is uh, Senior Master Sergeant Wanda Joel, who is the first African-American woman to serve on Air Force One. And she serves from George H.W. Bush all the way to Barack Obama. And she was on the plane on 9-11. So it's interesting wow. just to hear some of her experiences. And then there's a lot of funny stories. I think one of my favorite funny kind of Air Force One stories is Ronald Reagan loved Bavarian cream pie. And he got on the plane and he saw that was on the menu. He just lit up like a little kid. Now, unfortunately for President Reagan, Nan First Lady Nancy Reagan was with him. And she said, you're not having that. And evidently <laughs> the account from the White House, uh, the Air Force One person guy, he's just like, yeah, the president was completely deflated. Like a little kid having his balloon popped. Oh my gosh. Did you, when you spoke with, you know, some of the chefs and when you were doing your research, what were some of their comments on, you know, the larger galas that are thrown um, by the president, you know, when they're creating a meal, um, did they share with you any of that experience? Um, only on a to a limited extent. So um, the big galas, uh, I mean, the one that most people know is the White House uh, state dinner, mm -hmm. which is thrown for the highest representative of government. And so what people have to understand is uh, anybody who is not that, who they can have the same party, but it's called something different. It's called an official dinner. Mm -hmm. So the difference is Great Britain is the best example. The queen of the queen or king of England is always going to get a state dinner, but the prime minister would get an official dinner just so people know. So, uh, you know, that's the great time to show off the pageantry of the White House, uh, the very best time to show off their food traditions. And, uh, you know, some people have gotten an attitude in recent years because there's been a tendency to now have these celebrity guest chefs. So the very time that a White House chef can shine, it's like, uh, you know, farmed out to somebody else. And, uh, you know, some people got some feelings about that. Uh, I but bet they uh, do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. But that's that's just been a trend. Um, not so much for Trump. I don't think Trump has had one celebrity um, person. I can't think of one. He's only had a few state dinners anyway. But right. it was definitely during the Obama administration that you saw that. 
One other thing I want to note on kind of White House food, especially the state dinners, is that um, I don't think people give Hillary Clinton as much due as she should get for really changing the trajectory of White House food. Um, before, it was really heavily French, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like the same, you know, just like French stuff all, you know, all the time. And she was really the first one to say, okay, we're going to really focus on American ingredients and celebrate our bounty within our, our own country. And so the template for like a state dinner meal is to have American in ingredients, but then to prepare it with a flavor profile that's a nod to the visiting dignitary. So for example, um, a guy, the late Patrick Clark, um, African-American guy, really the last African-American to be offered the White House job, he had the honor of cooking the state dinner for Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. And the dish was a halibut with a sesame crust, a sesame and wasabi crust and then red uh let's say a lemongrass and red curry vegetables so the yeah the american ingredients but then the red curry and lemongrass was a nod to the malay flavors that um, nelson mandela would have been familiar with growing up in south africa so that kind of thing and so that that still is the template for now And um, the the current White House executive chef is a woman named Christetta Comerford, who has been there since the second term of George W. Bush. So that's a that's a pretty long stint. That is a long stint. Um, Is it a desirable gig to be a Uh, White House chef? Is it in demand? mm -hmm. I think because of the prestige and the ability to create and just the sense of history and place for where you work. Um, But a lot of it just really depends on the president. Uh, you hear you hear accounts from chefs about how their lives were miserable because the chef just or the president really did not um, respect them or their time. So, for instance, LBJ, mm-hmm. Lyndon Johnson would show up. Um, he would show up for dinner late, sometimes at nine o'clock or ten o'clock at night, and he want dinner ready, even though he doesn't give the person a heads up. Um, he would show up with extra guests. So imagine you're planning a dinner for just two people, and he shows up with eight. Yeah, and he expects everything done. Um, then you've got presidents who are notoriously late, like John F. Kennedy was always late. So um, when Rene Verdon, who was the French chef at that time, wanted to make a souffle, and what you know, what's the biggest danger when you make a souffle? That it's going to fall. Nobody right. likes that. Yeah, yeah. So you know what he did to get around that, or to try to mitigate it with JFK being late? Mm-mm. He would make four souffles and he would cook them at fifteen-minute intervals. Oh, hoping that just one of them would catch Kennedy at the right time. You're kidding. No. Oh my gosh. I mean, so in your research for this book, did you find that most of the presidents are pretty fussy and just so demanding, you know, on their chefs? And because there is also this, um, there's also like a system in place, right? In the kitchen. Well, so um, just to uh, also go back to your question about, you know, what is it hard, arduous and things like that. So usually uh, people are working in shifts. So it's not like you're all you're there the whole time at the mm-hmm. beck and call of the president. People work on sh- in shifts because you've got in terms of the White House kitchen team, you've got the executive chef and then you usually have a pastry chef. That pastry chef may have their own assistant. And then they're usually anywhere from three to five assistant chefs. So that's how they kind of manage the workflow. Um so uh, I think the fact that you're there um, is prestigious. Uh, that all helps quite a bit. And, um, you know, you get to put your stamp of the cuisine. Now, the, the tricky thing is first feeling out the new president and the first family and just making sure you understand what they like. Right. And then um, over time, there's only been a few examples of presidents really being fussy uh, about the cooking. For the most part, they seem very easy to please. Well, that's good. And you include so many of the wonderful recipes um, in your book, you know, as well. And bringing us to modern times, you know, one of the, one of the, I believe it was the last president that you have mentioned in the book here would be Barack Obama. What was the Obama's uh, favorite for dinner? Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah. So Barack Obama was a healthy guy. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, he liked salmon, kind of light salads. But, you know, he had this other side, which usually uh, emerged when First Lady Michelle Obama wasn't around. I mean, he he liked some burgers. Mm -hmm. He likes pie. Uh, He's a barbecue guy. So, uh, you know, he balanced those things out. But, you know, the the whole arugula joke, you know, that what you know, that that did that is him. He was a pretty healthy 
eating guy. And if you've seen, I don't know if you've seen the recent pictures of him in Hawaii. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. That dude's in still, still in good shape. Uh, and um, the word on the street is that Michelle Obama was a big fan of Mexican food. So, uh, you know, like uh, Rick Bayless uh, in Chicago, they loved his restaurants, things like that. Um, and, and soul food as well. But uh, yeah, I, I would say they had some pretty diverse tastes. That's awesome. And I think that, you know, they also had two small children, you know, and so there's, there hasn't always been children in the White House, but when there is, you know, the chefs definitely need to be able to shift and, and um, please everyone, right? Everyone's palate. Right. Which can get tricky. Yeah, that can get tricky. And that's, that's often why a family, I think will bring um, a private chef. So the last uh, president, and so Obama's, the Obama's had um, a private chef in addition to the executive chef. So mm-hmm. like a family chef, Sam Cass. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last family to really do that in the White House was the Johnsons. And when you think about it, that was the, you know, the last family to really have, well, I guess Carter's had Amy. So maybe that's not a hard and fast rule. But anyway, um, you know, for the most part, the executive chef is going to do all the cooking. And so they just really try to figure out um, what the family likes. And then you just have to know the do's and don'ts. What are the food allergies? What are the food taboos? Those kind of things. Let's um, let's bring it back to, to Washington again, because one of the things that you mentioned in your book is that, you know, early on, uh, you would be charged, right? You would have to pay to have a chef and, and all of that. And so um, early on, the presidents would then bring their, would bring slaves in to do the work. And then at some point, um, it was part of their expenses. And then, you know, coming out all the way up to present day, where you might have the executive chef and then the chef that you bring. Can we can we maybe just go all the way back and talk about how that how that uh, changed? Yeah. So um, really, up until Truman's time, the president of the United States had to pay for their own chef. Mm -hmm. They had to buy their own food. Um, They had to pay for a lot of their staff. It wasn't until the Truman era that, that Congress really started allocating regular funds for the White House staff and um, just, you know, for the White House family um, to live on. So when you go to the White House today, if you're, you know, uh, president, first lady, whoever, you order your food and then you're going to get a bill. And that bill itemizes how much everything costs. And so that is drawn against this account that's set out. Hmm. So it's not like you can just eat everything you want all the time and without any consequences. You have to be mindful of how much money you have left. So we hear stories of presidents going off um, about how the food bill is so expensive. There's so many stories about Kennedy yelling at um, Jacqueline Kennedy about just how much they're paying for food. About you know, her grocery did. bill? Come on. Yeah, <laughs> Come because on. You know, that she has she had uh, she had refined oh. taste. So you know he was just like cut back. And so the way they get around it is. Um, before Truman, believe it or not, presidents would eat food that people sent them. Okay. Um, and people sent a lot of food, so they would actually eat that. You know, nobody would ever do that today. Mm-hmm. But um, the ways, ways they get around it is they will shift the cost to other agencies. And so you never really know who's paying for everything. And then there, there are, um, depending on the event, you know, like say the Democratic National Committee is going to host a, you know, wants to have an event at the White House, then the White House can say, okay, we'll host it, but you guys got to pay for the food or things like that. So. So what was your favorite thing to eat in the White House? So my favorite thing was the, there's a place called the White House mess, and this is not a political statement. This is just a <laughs> private <laughs> dining space in the White House. So I love the cheeseburger. Uh, they made yeah. an awesome cheeseburger. I don't know if it's good now. You know, this is like 20 years ago since I worked there, but that was a good cheeseburger. That was a good cheeseburger. You can't really mm-hmm. go wrong with a cheeseburger. I don't think so. You know, now that I think about it, I should have celebrated my 20th anniversary of working there. Oh, well, I'll have no. to wait till 25. <laughs> yeah, wait till 25. So where did your love um, for barbecue come from? Well, it came late. I mean, I always had barbecue growing up because again, a family with Southern roots, that's what we did. But I really only had barbecue three times a year. So it was uh, Memorial Day, 4th of July, Labor Day. And we just didn't go out for barbecue. Uh, I just don't have any memories of that. So it really wasn't until um, after I worked in the White House and moved back to Denver, 
I'm working on that soul food book. And I just noticed that a lot of soul food restaurants had a barbecue option. Mm-hmm. And so I thought if I'm going to really understand soul food, I need to know, learn more about barbecue. Um, and then just by chance, I found out about this thing called the Southern Foodways Alliance, which is an amazing organization where people get to explore uh, different cuisines in the South and get to understand the history and the social context. And um, they have an annual symposium. They have a theme, they have an annual symposium and that symposium has a theme. And so really the, the year that I started really looking at the subject of soul food, the theme was barbecue. So uh, I, they had a field trip that summer because the, the symposium is in the fall at the University of Mississippi in Oxford. Mm-hmm. And there was a um, field trip to Austin, Texas. So I spent three days eating barbecue in Austin, Texas. And I'm, I'm not going to lie. It was three of the happiest days of my life. I was going to say, I'm not feeling sorry for you. I've been yeah. to Austin. Barbecue there is damn good. So. Yeah. <laughs> so in addition to all that eating, there was programming, lectures, and other things talking about the social context of barbecue. And that just really struck me because, you know, I'm a nerd. So I want to, I was just intrigued by all that stuff anyway. Mm -hmm. And then um, to just understand the history of food, what it means, what it says about people or cultures, how it comes together. I've just, I've just been fascinated by that ever since. Well, tell me about it. Uh, About the symposium or just that? No, about the story of barbecue. You know, what fascinates you about it? Well, you know, um, first of all, there's a lot of people that believe that black people invented barbecue. Mm-hmm. And um, I will. I want to believe that because it's one of the most <laughs> delicious things on the planet. Mm-hmm. But if you actually look at the history, um, a large chunk of the story is looking at what Native Americans were doing. Okay. So barbecue is really founded on Native American meat preservation techniques. Um, that's that's what people were calling barbecue, and then it gets changed about two hundred years later to uh, basically cooking a whole animal, usually a domesticated animal from Europe over a long trench with hard work, hard, hardwood coals burning down in the trench. And that animal is butterflied for constant flipping. And it was enslaved African-Americans doing the cooking. Mm. Uh, barbecue first starts, it's actually enslaved uh, Native Americans. And mm. that's one thing I didn't know. I didn't know that there was Native American slavery before we had African slavery. Um, and Native American slavery just doesn't last long because one, Native Americans were more familiar with the environment than Europeans, so it was easier to escape. Mm-hmm. But also this devastation from European pathogens. Um, the, the, the number of people who die in the Americas from exposure to European diseases mm-hmm. and also subsequent genocide and other things is staggering. I think almost 90% of the pre-contact uh, population dies within a few hundred years. So, um, so that, that's just staggering to think about. So it was very important to me as I tell the story of barbecue to really give a shout out and honor the Native American Foundation and then show how it pivots to African-Americans as the go-to cooks. And for two centuries, African-Americans are barbecue's most effective ambassadors. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who, for the most part, take barbecue, Southern barbecue to other parts of the nation but then in the 1990s, there's a shift away from African-Americans and all of a sudden it's barbecues just about white dudes. And it's really, you know, a few types of white dudes. You got the hipsters, uh, you know, the guys with the interesting glasses, facial mm-hmm. hair, tattoos. You've got the Bubba's, uh, you know, the guys on Dukes of Hazard, Moonshiners, Duck Dynasty. They're all kind of the same person. Mm-hmm. They, all go, they all get TV shows. I don't know why there's not a show about every one of them. Yeah. Um, and then um, the fine dining chefs, because fine dining chefs are in barbecue way more than they ever were. 30 years ago, you didn't have fine dining chefs doing barbecue because barbecue was thought of as menial labor that led to delicious results. Sure, barbecuers were appreciated, but nobody thought of what they were doing as uh, a highly valued um, craft. Because barbecue was work, working class food. Barbecue was not expensive. You can't right. say that now. Right. It's more like casual dining food, right? You see it when I, you know, you think about it served on a paper plate. It's something you're going to eat fairly quickly. It's not like a big, big, huge sit down meal that might take hours and hours with champagne and wine. Um, 
but that's what barbecue that's what a large segment of barbecue has become mm -hmm. um and you have to cook you know kobe beef or wagyu beef and um or wagyu i should say beef um and so you know so the question is um barbecue has been gentrified and um the interesting thing that's happened to me is that barbecue has been redefined away from the way that african americans for the most part make it and now you have a whole class of people saying what African-Americans were doing for two centuries is not true barbecue. Yeah. And that's, and that's just messed crazy. up. That is messed up. And this did. Okay. So based on that, is that what brought you to start writing your new book that's coming out? Um, Black smoke. Uh, yeah, for the most part, but I, just not to put the cart before the horse. I mean, the real, the pivotal event was being traumatized by something I saw on television so uh, 2004, I'm watching the Food Network and they had this show called Paula Deen's Southern Barbecue. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this is before all the racism stuff and all that other stuff emerged. So, you know, I was like, oh, I'm learning about barbecue now because I'd been to the symposium and all that. And I said, let me just watch it. So hour later, the credits are rolling and there's just not one African-American who was on air being interviewed. There were black people in the background doing the work, but mm -hmm. in terms of the everybody focused and featured, no African-Americans. So I was like, okay, well, maybe it was Paula Deen's Scandinavian barbecue and I just got it twisted. Yep. Okay. You know, sponsored by Alabama white sauce. Um, so then I just said, okay, well, what, what, what's the deal here? So then I just started looking at all these other barbecue media, magazines, newspapers, television shows, and it was the same thing. Over time and time after again, just white dudes, maybe a white woman every once in a while, but mainly white dudes. You'd get a black person every once in a while. And so as I delve more deeply into the media world, I found that before the 1990s, that wasn't the case. So before the 1990s, if you had an article on barbecue, it was no big deal to mention an African-American. In mm -hmm. fact, if you didn't mention an African-American, people would think, what's, what's up with this writer? And we've completely, we've completely changed that. Um, so my, my purpose with this book is to say, look, if you're going to tell the barbecue story in the United States, you have to include African-Americans. And um, I'm really just trying to get barbecue media back to where it was before the 1990s. And mm -hmm. that's inclusive and diverse. Because I'm not saying that only Black people make bar good barbecue. There are plenty of people that make great, great, great barbecue. I'm just saying you need to have some balance. Um, because, you know, uh, and this is a real problem with restaurant criticism. I can't tell you how many newspaper articles I've read where uh, some white dude will open up a barbecue joint uh -huh. and a food writer, usually for the local newspaper or magazine, will write about that new barbecue place. And they will act like that was the very first barbecue that ever arrived in that city. And these are in cities that have deeply rooted African-American barbecue traditions. Huh. Um, in fact, the way they find these people, as obscure as some of them are, I think it counts as investigative journalism. Really? So, yeah. I mean, you're just like, they're just plucking people. And you're just like, and so, um, and what's funny is that in some of these instances, the writer is writing for a publication, which I've done the research, right? So I'm looking at that same publication, which 40 years ago was talking about all these African-Americans in their community making great barbecue. So I'm like, this writer is even too lazy to even look at what their own publication has written on this stuff. So it's just maddening because it's just a fun, it goes to a fundamental problem, I think, in food media today. Most people who decide what food stories get told are not diverse. Um, and they usually have non-diverse networks. So when they're looking for story ideas, they're just asking all of their white friends, who should they sure. talk about? And if their white friends are not committed to diversity or don't know, then they're going to give more and more white people. And so that's why those same people keep showing up over and over again. It's lack of diversity on the storytelling, or I should say the green lighting of story side. Mm -hmm. And then um, more often than not, the people who are white restaurateurs and others have a few more resources so they can have a PR person who can get them in front of these very, very busy people who are deciding what stories can get, get told. So I know that there's some reporters and others that are just like, oh, I got this press release. Oh, I didn't know about this. Okay, let me just check this out. Rather than mm -hmm. saying, okay, I got this press release, but I'm hearing from all these, the same agent about all these people, like what else is out there in my community? Right. And that's what it's all about. I mean, you talk so much about 
and conversations, at least that I've had with you, our most recent conversation about, you know, how food connects people and how food connects to a community. And so if you're not doing the research, right, and you're not um, genuinely looking to see what the people in your backyard are doing, what the heck are you doing? Right. But, you know, some people are so myopic with their sense of community that they actually think that they are fully covering their community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just doesn't even occur to them that they're not. So um, and then um, to the extent that sometimes African-American um, restaurants are covered, there's usually coded language. Oh, this is an up and coming neighborhood or there's like, you know, it gives a sense of a slight sense of danger. Uh, and, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that's loaded into some of these references to places. So, you know, it just uh, it's just not a great situation. Now, it is getting better. Um, mm-hmm. I'm starting to see improvement. We still have a long way to go. But, uh, you know, I'm still seeing television shows and other things purporting to, you know, tell you the very best in barbecue. And it's just white people. And um, that's just not an accurate view because you've got Latinos, Mm African-Americans, there's some top-notch Asian-Americans doing some interesting stuff with barbecue, especially with fusion. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, it's just like, uh, and and we're at a time where diners want, they want a taste of global flavors. They want to experiment and find out something new. They don't want the same old, same old, not all the time. There is a desire to get that authentic, reaching decades or maybe even centuries back kind of cooking, but they also want to discover the new stuff that's going on, the stuff that's kind of exciting. Yeah. I think it's funny when I grew up in um, my mother's pantry, I think we had three, three spices (laughs) and like salt, pepper, and garlic. And now when I go to my mom's and I open up her pantry, it's just filled with different types of things. It's so exciting. It's like even mom who's almost 80 years old has definitely reached uh, past her comfort zone and trying different cuisines and getting excited about, about spices and, and herbs and really to add um, unique flavors to food where I can promise you over 40 years ago, wasn't the case. Yep. So. Yeah. Uh, so your mom's a foodie and uh, you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, there's a lot more foodies out there they've got disposable income and they're, they're willing to travel. So what they're looking for are curators. And so in my book, what I talk about is the fact that people are looking for curators of the experiences. So curators, it's on you mm-hmm. to be inclusive right. because those people don't know. And, you know, mm-hmm. they're busy. Like a lot of people, they don't have time to thoroughly research a, 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 the scene of a city. They just know they're going to a city and they want to know where to go. Yeah, absolutely. In your research, um, when you were writing Black Smoke, what did you learn about barbecue sauce, Adrian? Because I know that there's a big debate, you know, do you want to do like the North Carolina style with the vinegar? Are you more of the tomato base? And what did you learn any histories um, behind that? Well, so the interesting thing is that for several centuries, um, there was a uniform, there was uniform agreement on what sauce was for barbecue. It was pretty much vinegar and red pepper. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, every once in a while, there'd be some variation, but that that's what you did. And, and, and um, basically you applied that vinegar throughout the co- uh, cooking process. So it wasn't slump something that was slapped on at the very end, like a condiment. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have an attitude about that type of cooking, which we call North Carolina barbecue. Yes. And I think the reason why they have an attitude is because they just haven't had good stuff. Because if you have barbecue like that by somebody who knows what they're doing. There's a depth mm-hmm. of flavor that's very interesting. But then when you get to the late 1800s, you start to have these variations in sauce emerge. You have butter sauces, you have tomato sauces, because for a long time, people thought tomatoes were poisonous. Um, so it took a while for tomatoes to be accepted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, along with the emergence of different types of sauces, you start to get a fragmentation in the sense of what barbecue is. And that's where we start to see the individual regional styles start to develop. Um, So barbecue um, goes through a big redefinition phase uh, turn of the 20th century. Um, And now it's going through another one really at the turn of the 21st century. Um, So yeah, so uh, my sauce I love is Kansas City style. And that's a function of growing up in Denver. That was the strongest influence. Mm -hmm. So I love a a sweet tomato-y sauce. Mm -hmm. I like that, 
but I, I like North Carolina barbecue, but um, you know, I like a Kansas city or Memphis sauce. Those are probably my favorites. Yeah. I, I, that's my favorite as well. I like that sweet, you know, the sweetness. It's so good. And people are very territorial when it comes to their barbecue and the sauces that they apply to it for sure. And including yeah. the sides, you know, we haven't even talked about the different sides. That yeah. Are so there's just a lot of variation. And so, um, yeah, so the, the sauce story is interesting. Now, the thing that unnerves me with the current barbecue scene is that there's an emerging conventional wisdom that bar- true barbecue should be unsauced so that you can taste the meat. And that, okay. you know, African-Americans are not down with that. Yeah. For a lot of African-Americans, it's more about the sauce than the meat because they're just like, sure. well, anybody can cook the meat. Right. But what are you putting on the meat to make it delicious? Right. Mm-hmm. And now yeah. look, uh, you know, I'm, I see what people are talking about. Cause I, there's a lot of times I like my meat unsauced cause I want to taste that smoky flavor, but mm-hmm. man, if you got a good sauce, I think that, you know, that, that shows the artistry of the cook. So, you know, it was meant to be with that sauce. Yes. <laughs> you might, as well, you might as well experience that as well. Yeah. What's your favorite um, barbecue? What's your favorite meat to have barbecued? I'm a spare rib guy. So that's, Are my you? Touch- yeah, I'm, that's my touchstone. So yeah, spare ribs. That's the way to go. And where do you think in our country, who has the best? Um, you know, uh, there's, I, I would not pin it to one region because there's been so much movement, but, um, you know, Kansas city, I think has some great ribs. Another great rib place are usually like Kansas city in the deep South. I would say have the best ribs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had really good ribs in East Texas, especially like Houston. Okay. So, um, and in Memphis, I'm sorry, I got to throw Memphis in there too. So I, I would say that those are great rib places. There's a lot of good ribs up North, uh, especially like in Cleveland, Detroit, those kind of places. I think they're prepared a little bit differently. Um, stronger kind of charcoal taste. Mm-hmm. To them. Uh, but yeah, the, the I love Kansas City, Memphis kind of um, deep south, that version. That's great. Did you notice um, or would you say that the places that you went to, um, that the recipes are generational, that are really local to that place and have been passed down throughout families? Because barbecue to me is quite interesting, um, being that it is very territorial and people are very prideful you know, and they should be of what they're producing even more often than some other cuisines. Um, But do you find that a lot of the recipes have been passed down and it's really a lot of the same family that's working in these places? Uh, Yeah, um, I think that's changing. But yeah, I would definitely Mm -hmm. say that. But now what seems to be happening is that the, the current generation of kids are not interested in carrying on that work in a lot of cases. And I think it's because, you know, running a restaurant is hard. Yeah. And then depending on the way that they're barbecuing, you know, old school barbecue is hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, so unless people want to shift, because, you know, truth be told, most people are cooking with gas now right. and they're faking the funk because what they'll do mm-hmm. is they'll put some wood out front to make you think that they're burning wood and they might even start a little fire just to get that scent going. But a lot of people are cooking with gas and, uh, you know, so it's a matter of you're just you're still doing the prep work and the seasoning and stuff. But, you know, you're pretty much just putting pushing a button. And then just periodically checking to make sure that everything's cooked well. So um, I think if if some of the old school places transition to that kind of cooking, then maybe the kids would be like, oh, okay. Um, but you know, a lot of the barbecue people I told me they just don't think their kids are up for it. Yeah. They just I heard a lot of times it's too big for him. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know what that means. So, I know what that means. That's a shame. Yeah. That's so, you know, well, it's going to be interesting to see if these places survive once that person who ran it for decades decides to just hang it up. Right. Right. Um, what what are we going to see next out of you, Adrian? Um, well, I mean, you know, I'm thinking about the times because of all the racial division and other things. I'm just thinking, you know, what can how can I bring my gifts to bear so that um, I can bring people together? And I'm, so one thing I'm thinking about is a food based dialogue guide where uh, essentially any rough topic, how to do it through food. And so it's going to be kind of a potluck and themed meal approach. And uh, it'll be a small guidebook. It's not going to be a ton of pages. And the idea is just to give you conversation prompts, what to do as a host, and just, um, you know, really how to use food to bring us together. 
So I'm thinking about that. And then um, some other things I'm thinking about is like, I'd love to do a book on the history of African-Americans in Colorado, because we've had some next level people here. Mm-hmm. And then I would love to write about the history of black street vendors, because um, they were the food trucks of the 17 and 1800s. And they, they were very important to the food scenes of a lot of cities and introduced a lot of dishes or made them popular. Mm-hmm. And so there, there have been some books that tell their story. But the cool thing is that I have the lyrics and the sheet music for their street cries. So with somebody, really? can, yeah. So with somebody, how, can sing, how did you get that? So uh, through archives and then, um, you know, there's a lot of old newspapers that would actually p- print the bars and the notes for the street cries. And so, you know, if you can read music, um, mm-hmm. basically you can recreate what somebody would be hearing in New Orleans in 1800 as they woke up in the morning and somebody's trying to get their attention to buy their stuff. I hope you'd write that book. I really want to. And then um, I'm just going to put it out there. I'm hoping that Beyonce and when her pals will put out whatever music's called when that book comes out and whatever form it comes in, that they'll have like a, I'll have a companion musical piece to that book. So you can hear what these cries sound like. I think that would be amazing. I'm Adrian Miller and Beyonce collaboration. You heard it here first. Yeah, I'm have her sing lemonade. Ah, have her do it. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Listen, I've enjoyed you so much. I hope that um, that you come back to served up, Adrian. I wish you all the best with your books and with life. And I cannot wait to sit and have maybe some barbecue with you um, when this pandemic is over with or we can hang out as friends. Yeah, yeah. That would be cool. I think it'd be super cool. Yeah. So in the meantime, if people can just follow me on most platforms like Twitter, Instagram, I'm at Soul Food Scholar, one word. My website is soulfoodscholar.com. And then I have a Facebook fan page, Soul Food Scholar. So it's pretty easy if you remember Soul Food Scholar. And my tagline is dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. So that's what I endeavor to do. And I I know you're just going to continue to drop that knowledge like hot biscuits, my friend. Word. Yes. I'm so happy you're on the show today. So listen, I want to wish you just great health and peace um, in 2021. So thank you so much for joining me today. Cheers, Adrian. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!